Kwat. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 43, The Kentish Royal Legend. With the death of Eadbald, we find ourselves square in the middle of a complicated textual history regarding the foundation legend of the Monastery of Minster in Thanet. The various narratives which make up this history are collectively known as the Kentish Royal Legend, or sometimes the Mildreth Legend after St. Mildreth, or sometimes Mildred, the great-granddaughter of King Athelbert, who was the first abbess of the royal monastery on the island of Thanet. The legend is clearly based on older material, but the earliest extant version of the story comes from the early 11th century. It survives in several versions, which I will discuss in more detail once I've set out the basic structure of the narrative. Despite being mainly concerned with the foundation of Minster and Thanet, the legend also contains a lot of details and family stories about the descendants of King Athelbert, making it a potentially rich source for the history of Kent in the 7th century. That is why I'm talking about it here. However, as the title legend should make clear, the story contains much that is supernatural, and many of its components are difficult to corroborate as historical facts. However, it is worth talking about and unpacking somewhat. One of these complicated facts just so happens to do with the question of who succeeded Eadbald. But to explain this, we need to explain a little bit about why the Kentish royal legend has at its core a story about the murder of two children. When the monastery on Thanet was founded by King Edgbert of Kent, the legend says that he undertook the act in repentance for his role in the murder of his two cousins, Ethelred and Athelbert, which had been perpetrated in his name. As part of this undertaking, he vowed that the abbess of the monastery would be the boy's niece, Mildreth. These boys were, according to the legend, the sons of Aormenred, the eldest son of Eadbald. Yet most sources say that in 640, Eadbald was succeeded by his younger son, Eochenbert. There is a long-standing confusion as to why this was the case, since the legend holds that Eormenred was still alive in 640. No one is quite sure what happened here. To make things more confusing, some versions of the legend do refer to Eormenred as king, raising the possibility that he and his brother ruled jointly for a time but that upon Eormenred's death at some point prior to 664, Eorkenbert became a sole king of Kent. The reason for Eorkenbert becoming sole king of Kent, at least according to the legend, is that at the time of Eormenred's death, his sons, Ethelred and Athelbert, were still too young to assume the throne. Therefore, they were entrusted to the guardianship of their uncle. As king, Eorkenbert seems to have been closely involved with the religious politics of Kent. Bede tells us that it was Eorkenbert who commanded the destruction of all pagan idols in Kent and enforced mass observance of Lent among the people. It was also Eorkenbert who appointed the first native-born Archbishop of Canterbury in 655. The post-conquest tradition says that the man's birth name was Frithona, which seems to be a corruption of Thrithelwina by Norman chroniclers, but he is remembered in records mainly by the name he took upon becoming Archbishop, Deus Dedit, Latin for God has given. He probably was inspired to take this name by a Pope Deus Dedit, 
who had served as pontiff between 615 and 618. Despite being the first native-born archbishop, Deus Dedit seems to have presided during a period when the forces of the Roman Church in England were in something of a hibernation. During his nine-year archiepiscopacy, Deus Dedit consecrated only one bishop, while the Irish missionary bishops elsewhere in England were consecrating many new clergy, indicating the energy that they brought to the church. Deus Dedit also doesn't seem to have attended the Synod of Whitby, held in 664, but this may be due to an outbreak of plague in that year, which ultimately killed him. Eochenbert married Seixbur, the daughter of the East Anglian king, Anna, and it was with her that he had several children, including two sons named Edgbert and Hlotherer. Upon Eochenbert's death in 664, Edgbert became king and took on the role of guardian of Ethelred and Ethelbert. They came to live with their cousin at the royal estate of Eastry in eastern Kent. According to the legend, the young Edgbert had an attendant named Thunor, who feared that should Edgbert be deposed, he would lose his livelihood. This Thunor played on Edgbert's anxiety that the two young princes might take up arms against their cousin when they came of age. The different versions of the legend disagree about what happened next. Some say that Edgbert ordered Thunor to kill the princes, others that he gave in to Thunor's suggestions, and others that Thunor acted on his own initiative. Where they all agree is that Thunor killed the two princes and buried their bodies under the throne at Eastry. However, a mysterious light illuminated where the bodies were concealed. Depending on the version of the story, this either caused Edgbert or Thunor to confess to the killing. In remorse, Edgbert agreed to pay Weregild to the victim's surviving family, their eldest sister, Domna Eova, who was the wife of Merowal, son of King Penda, king of the Magosata, and briefly following the Northumbrian victory at Winward, puppet ruler of Mercia. According to the legend, it was Domna Eova, who requested land on Thanet for a monastery in repayment for the murder of her brothers. As for Thunor, the story says that he complained to Edgbert about how much land was being given to Domna Eva, at which point a hole opened up in the earth and swallowed him whole. Mildreth was Domna Eva's daughter, and so it was her mother's wish that she head the new monastery. While the murders of the two princes have, on account of the royal legend, become the main focal point of much of Edgbert's reign, evidence suggests that, like his father, he too was a king with connections and interests in the church. His mother, of course, was an East Anglian princess, which suggests close ties between the two kingdoms during his reign. He is also recorded as having hosted various notable ecclesiastical figures during his reign, including Wilfred and Benedict Bishop, as well as providing escorts to Theodore and Hadrian on their journey to England in the 660s. None of that really gets mentioned in the royal legend, though. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, 
is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating of the podcast on the podcast provider that you're using to listen to this. When you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, add free episodes, and transcripts, all by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout-out to John Jurgensen, David Mader, Jim Gannon, P. Warren, and James H., who all recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I really hope that you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. What I've presented thus far is the basic gist of the royal legend. As I said at the outset of this episode, the earliest complete version of the story comes from the early 11th century so several centuries after the events it relates are purported to have occurred. Scholars agree, though, that the legend is based on earlier sources, mostly deriving from Thanet itself. It is suggested that the Thanet version of the story survives in an Old English text in the British Library manuscript Cotton Caligula A14, which, despite dating from the mid-11th century, contains material which may indicate roots back into the 8th century, 
Specifically, this version emphasises Domna Eavas and Mildred's links to the Mercian royal family, which may suggest roots in the period of Mercian rule in Kent. For this reason, some scholars argue that the Caligula A text was copied from a Thanet version of the legend. While the Caligula A text probably contains 8th century material, in its current form, the earliest versions of the story both date from the early 11th century. They were written following the translation, that is, the removal of relics from one church to another, of the relics of Ethelred and Athelbert to the monastery of Ramsey in East Anglia. To explain why this occurred, during the Benedictine monastic reforms of the late 10th century, one of the leading reformers, Athelwald, Bishop of Winchester, became something of a fanatic for collecting the relics of early English saints and distributing them to churches and monasteries he founded. The other men involved in these reforms were less interested in collecting relics, but probably out of a desire to share in some of the wealth and power that Athelwald accrued, the heirs of these other reformers sought out relics, albeit in a much smaller number. The monastery of Ramsey had been founded by Oswald, Bishop of Worcester and Archbishop of York, but it was only after Oswald's death that the monks of Ramsey obtained the relics of Ethelred and Athelbert. As the Kentish royal legend makes clear, the two princes were swiftly venerated as martyrs following their death. Whether this was a means of attracting patronage to the new monasteries that were directly held in royal hands, or whether it was because of genuine miracles occurring, or most likely some combination of political benefit and perceived miracles, we don't really know. The legend only relates that people later claimed that miracles were occurring, and that, therefore, the princes were martyrs. Of course, it's a retrospective claim, and we don't really know what happened on the ground at the time, but this is the claim that became widespread and that attracted the attention of 10th century Benedictine reformers. And if that all seems like a lot of information to dump on you all of a sudden, I'll just say don't worry, because I will say a lot more about all of this in later episodes. I quite literally wrote my PhD thesis on the Benedictine reforms, so I have quite a lot to say about them. The translation of relics was always a momentous event accompanied by processions and masses, and often the production of texts about the saints being translated. It was in this context that the earliest complete versions of the royal legend were written. The versions based on this text do not emphasise the Mercian links of the protagonists, but rather highlight the martyrdom of the two princes and the miraculous events which allegedly followed even to the point of rewriting some events cast as ordinary in the Thanet version of the story and presenting them as miracles. This text also removes references to many of the women who appear in the other versions of the story. The official, and note the air quotes around official, version of the legend was produced at Canterbury following the Norman Conquest. The relics of Mildreth had been translated to Canterbury in 1030, and so post-conquest churchmen at Canterbury made it a point of honour to promote the relics and cult of Mildreth. This Canterbury version of the story 
is presented very much as a traditional saint's life about Mildreth. But the weight of the family history material, as well as the interest in the details of the foundation of Thanet, all are still very much present in this story, and result in its being a somewhat cumbersome saint's life, in which Mildreth herself doesn't actually appear until close to the end of the text, something which is quite unusual for saints' lives, since, as the title would suggest, they are usually all about the saints in question. All of this information about different versions of the texts and the different reasons for their being written can be a little overwhelming, but the point is that the royal legend seems to have roots dating back to at least the 8th century, via traditions preserved on Thanet itself. The emphases of the story changed over time to reflect the changing circumstances of late 10th and early 11th century England, and then subsequently post-conquest England. But at its core, there rests genuine historical traditions originating in early Kent. It is no exaggeration to say that the royal legend became something of a national saga about early Christian Kent. We can see this in the way that the story is used in the composite text known as On the Resting Places of Saints. This text, which dates to the 11th century, is an Old English catalogue of the various places in England which possessed the relics of saints. It is a composite text because it actually consists of two different texts which just happened to often be circulated together. One of these, referred to as the Sejan, due to its intrepid, which is Sejan Betham Godes Sanctum Ther on Englalonda Erost Reston, meaning Tale of God's Saints, who first rested in England, consists of simply a list of sites throughout England and the saints buried there. The other text, called Tha Halgan, again due to its intrepid, which reads Herkith Umba Tha Halgan Theon Angelkina Restath, meaning here a relation about the saints who rest in the English nation, is a version of the Kentish royal legend. What is interesting is that the Sejan contains no sites found in Kent. The royal legend then seems to have served as a list of the saints and monasteries of Kent. The story then took on a life of its own as a focal point for Kentish Christian history. As secular history, though, the story is obviously not wholly reliable. Many features and interpretations were added to it as it was adapted by different writers for different purposes, and it isn't always clear where the myth-making ends and the history begins. As I've noted, it doesn't contain many details about the reigns of Eorkenbert or Edgbert, and it also can't really help us explain whether Eormenred seemingly did not succeed his father, or if he did. What it does hint at, though, is dynastic tension among the children of Eadbald, which seemingly boiled over into the murder of Eormenred's sons, a murder in which Edgbert was to some degree complicit. This act did not depose Edgbert, though, nor did it prevent his brother and son from ruling Kent following his death in 673. But as we will discuss next time, dynastic tension was still very much rife in Kent, even after Edgbert's death, and the events of the Kentish royal legend were merely the beginning of these struggles. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. As always, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you will join me again next time. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.